this is Anna Wiener. I guess I should explain that I do see words, and I have since 1972. This is the Mad River Anthology, and I'm your host, Brent Jenkins. My guest tonight is poet, professor, publisher, and musician Patrick Durgan. Welcome, Patrick. Hello. Thanks for having me. Patrick is the editor-publisher of Hannah Wiener's Open House, which came out in 2007 and is published by Mr. Durgan's own Kenning Editions. So, Patrick, to get things started, tell our listeners who Hannah Wiener is, for those of might not be familiar with her, and how did you get interested in her work? Uh, well, I became interested in Hannah Wiener's work when I found a, a copy of uh, the Clairvoyant Journal, a book that was published in 1978 and is probably her most famous work in a used bookstore. I don't know. I must have paid under $5 for it. On the other hand, I was also... Uh, I knew of her name because I was interested in language writing movement, of which she was a part. And uh, it it snowballed from there when I was working on my dissertation. I wound up working with her archives down at UC San Diego, most of which had never been published. So I was doing primary research, and and that that became the seeds of Hannah Wiener's Open House. Patrick, could we impose upon you to maybe read something from the book? Uh, Yeah, uh, I, but I want to preface it by saying that, you know, uh, Wiener was an incredible reader herself, and her, her material is available, you know, in audio formats online, actually recordings of Wiener reading her work, and um, those are not to be missed. Any any reading I can offer of, of Wiener's work is, is going to come nowhere near the virtuosity that she had developed, but... Yeah, I can I can read you. This is a poem she called Jackson McClone. She claimed it to be clairvoyantly written. We're not sure uh, when it was written, but uh, it's signed clairvoyantly written Hannah Wiener. So Jackson McClone. Who is impossible as a leader? Who is Jackson, speaker, on the whole front page, continuance, often teach, silent, too. Horse carriage for Sir Elder. Please, Sir, older we grow, we know more older. Jackson, the perfect scream. This puzzles good dictionaries. Too much quote. Do out. Jackson, please break Dow. Don't erase Jackson. That's funny quote. Has, have. Good for you. Take Jackson out. Eat. Dear Jackson said, don't drink. Experiment in any form that occurs to Jackson. You hear Jackson's voice. Charlemagne. Jackson is obvious, ridiculous, wrong. Calling window level oolong big book. Just say Jackson's voice reread heard. Oh boy, permit. Life granted twice. What you're saying, what you're saying. Read also, he hears me when I read. Hear him too, also silent. Oh boy, don't get rid of that old man, please. Them boys and girls, oh boy, they learning fast. Oh, Jackson. The plant that flashed is still flashing. So what? Jackson can see its energy field. It's pretty, purple, iridescent. Oh, Jack, so potato field. Remember the umbrella. It wanted you to take an umbrella. Rain, you refused. It said, get an umbrella, get the navy, blue one. Jackson always carries one. He shows up with umbrella at a reading. You both come out, wow, it rains for one minute. You both laugh. Listen to Jackson's voice. Obtrusion, complete line, be clever, hear Jackson. Mm, what a great last line. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, talk a little bit about this poem for us. Uh, what, what do you make of this poem? It's a, a very well read, by the way. Uh, thank you for that. Well, I make it. Well, Hannah Wiener, for those who are unfamiliar with her work, Hannah Wiener often claimed to write clairvoyantly. She also said that her writing was, was often in a clear style. There's a lot of speculation as to what she meant by that. But in terms of formally what she actually delivers in the poems, she delivers a kind of poetry that doesn't occur in a single voice, as most lyric poetry does, and other forms of poetry. It occurs in a, you might even call it a quasi-dramatic form, in that there are three voices, one voice in the lowercase characters, one voice in uppercase characters, and there were only a couple of instances in this particular poem, such as when she shouts, wow, when it happens to rain after Jackson brings in a navy blue umbrella to the reading. And then there's an italicized voice. And these three voices are competing for uh, the reader's attention as you encounter them on the page. So when, when you read Wiener's work, it's important to respect each of the voices as being, you know, having its own sort of integrity. And so that's one interesting aspect of the poem. Another interesting aspect is that it's addressed to a single uh, character, Jackson McLow, also is, is one of the elders of language writing. He and Wiener will, are the first two names you'll read it's, uh, if you open, again, the Language Poetry's anthology. I believe he's also in, uh, in the American Tree. He's very important to the language poets, not so much to the New York School as, as Wiener was. And Wiener and Jackson were very close in some of their working methods. So this, is, this poem is unusual in that it's a tribute to Jackson. It's not unusual in that she's addressing and writing about a, a fellow artist in the New York City avant-garde. Her poetry is riven with such instances. What's unusual about this one, which to my knowledge had never been published um, until I dug it up in the archive, is that it, it, it's almost like an occasional poem, a, a poem to read, uh, you know, at, at a, a McLow roast or something like that. Mm -hmm. Normally you have, again, many voices competing for your attention, but also many different directions that the poem is sending you, not just to a single character, but often to uh, a whole milieu. Right, yeah. I've spent a lot of time recently with Hannah Wiener and her work, and it's been, it's part of the privilege and the joy of doing a show like this is it kind of allows you to spend, you know, two or three weeks of very intense time focusing on a single poet. And uh, surprisingly, that is sometimes difficult to do in life. But it is. It's, no, it's a, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that at all. Yeah, but it's a real, you know, it's a real opportunity, obviously, to be able to talk with somebody like you and, and do that work. One of the things that struck me in spending all this time with Hannah was, and I, I think it comes out in the piece that you read, is that there's an incredible kind of intimacy available in her work. And I think it has, you, you might want to speak to this, I think it has something to do with the openness, and, and that's obviously echoed in your title, Open House, and uh, I know that's based on, on some of her street works and, and uh, stuff that was happening in the 60s. But there's this incredible openness, this sense that Hannah kind of invites you in uh, to the conversations that she's having with other poets, with language itself. Uh, and that's just wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful to be a part of that. And she does that um, maybe better than anyone. It's certainly unique. I, I was, as you were reading, I was thinking, is there anything else like this? Right. In poetry, you know, I, I can't think of anything. Can you? Is there is there other work out there that sort of echoes what Hannah's doing? Or, 
Well, I, you know, I, I think first of Poets Theatre, not just because I've been immersed in it this week, but because I think that's where you find it. Um, you know, McLow's work, I think, has that quality, but really only, only in performance, you know? Right. Um, Wiener's work is different. She gives you that on the page. And I think thematically, and this wouldn't be true of, I'm sure, most of McLow's work, thematically, Wiener's work is about, is about welcoming others and communicating on a vast intersubjective level, you know, that sometimes veers into a kind of hocus-pocus territory that some people are impatient with. But I was curious to see how much impatience I would encounter when the, when the book came out. And people are, people are not impatient with that. I think that they're looking for that, perhaps generally speaking, but certainly from their reading material. So I think I think it's there thematically, but it's also there formally. I mean, it's a, it, you have to devise reading the work is performative, even when you read it silently to yourself, and that's that's true of Wiener's work in a way that I don't think it is even of uh, some of her closest peers like uh, McLow. Seems like a nice way to capture that the the performance aspect. I wanted to ask you about something because I think listeners are probably curious about this and you have already mentioned it and it's it's right up front in her work. It's hard to read her work without coming across it. I've resisted mentioning it um, throughout this interview because I think it's in some ways maybe the easy thing to do or the sort of dramatic thing to talk about. But nonetheless, let's see if we can't get into it a little bit. Her, her Claire style, her, her idea that um, you know, her almost constant refrain throughout the works, uh, certainly the later works, not the early stuff, but the idea that she sees words, um, that she is um, uh, doing some astral traveling, those kinds right. of things. Is that, does that give you any pause, that phenomena of her work or that kind of presence in her work? Because it's, it's certainly interesting. It doesn't give me pause. It doesn't give me pause in the sense that I, I hesitate to read the work for its literary values because I, in, in no way can it be said that her work is merely symptomatic of um, whatever kind of pathology she might have suffered in her lifetime. And we know that she did suffer in her lifetime. And we also know how slippery these sorts of diagnoses and care regimes can be, treatments sure. can be. And her work, again, you know, as, as you say, I mean, you, you can't miss it formally, and you also can't miss it thematically because so much of her writing is about, it is about the kinds of uh, stigmas that disrupt, you know, progressive social discourse and disrupt lives. So it's there, and it doesn't give me pause. If, if anything, it, it heightens the stakes. For everything that she does, and it just makes me admire her more, not because her work is a sort of overcoming of a readily discernible disease. It's not that sort of tale, um, but because because it's such a a vivid critique of the assumptions that we make associated with these sorts of uh, these sorts of claims. So you can read it as a, a kind of a rhetorical device of hers, and some critics and commentators have done that. Um, you can also read it as uh, symptomatic, but then I think you do, you do, uh, you if you merely do that, you lose 
um, you lose essentially everything that she has to offer because she doesn't offer she won't offer answers to your own questions about your own life <laughs> um, and it's highly questionable that she ever found um, uh, answers to her own particular you know health problems whatever they may be right but just to put it in in simple language um, as simple as I can it, it, it is known and it is believed by her friends and family um, that she did suffer and alternately uh, enjoy auditory and uh, especially visual hallucinations throughout her life and that she figured that was when I say enjoy I say she figured that that was um, that was enhancing her creative life this is Halloween, and it's Monday the 26th of April, 1993, and I am 64 years old, and God damn it, before I get to be dead, I'm going to write some more about silent teaching, but you will hear about that later. <laughs> now this piece is a really hard sort of language style written in 1989. This is Remembered Sequel. It's Claire style. Scene words. Yes, um, I guess I should explain that I do see words, and I have since 1972. Before that, I saw auras, and I saw images, and I saw sheets of power, coming down like rain and force fields and any uh, way else you would like to describe it. Uh, you're reading his mind more. Well, you're going to have to get used to the interruptions by poor. And when you hear more, it's poor. But I have been writing with scene words uh, since 1972. I wrote weeks, which is not clairvoyant, the fast is not clairvoyant, neither are the code poems. Once in a while I swing into something else, hard political if I can. I tend to be hard political when I'm not clairvoyant. When I'm clairvoyant, this is one thing you will have an example of, and it's called Remembered Sequel. Hannah, type your preferences Without seeing glad, two pages like calm forthcoming sentence, and forbidden sunshine is almost sun without sentence structure, like middle substructure, point up, keep coming, next page. In silence, importance, remove, schedule, important. Sentences in the middle give up, see next page. Something else is forbidden that isn't like important sequel. Remembered something, two sentences shut up and keep clear. A cross between a fox and a foreclosure sentence. And since clear the page, mere forbidden sensationalism and daring underneath it all shone like indelicacy was an ignorant schedule handle some structure like sentence. Speak so no one will listen, God forbidden, with a like. Who, says, speak the following two pages in subject matter? 
when he follows his clear mind substructure. This is a sequel. Whatever made you say unless he spoke in structure, something else could happen. Passages are remembered in infinite, repeated often. Say next sentence, so is this permissible without, never forget permissible, that you are without sentence, identified when you walk clear often, like streets. Next sentence, so many lies tell stories that are obliterated. Nevertheless, sometimes we sentence handle. Six next page, Hannah, it takes time clear to read silence without I continue, read at the church without combining, making it clear that I said I was indifferent to silent. Make a sentence structure like in the picture without. Pause period. No, there's no period. I never use them. Influences are opportunities without importance of flourishes. Next sentence preferences are frequent in my attitude. Like make it, Hannah, make it clear. I said something about which are glad to inherit from their family without giving scandal any money away. Subsequent to frequent explanation, I examine this tight manuscript. Some sentence alienation to someone clear who handles himself, say himself individual, has a certain individual complete end sentence. Some fabrication is a forbidden forgotten ritual. Like two short pages, substances provoked and handled with silence, like me, unload. Untidiness breeds uncertain individuals who drinking exchange, beneficial to the unemployed who scream everywhere. Alternating waves continuing. Pages fluency stop, writing continue. Skip sentence. Alternating with chapters like continuing fluid, personalities are not permitted anywhere around unless they adhere. We are not concerned about while concerning things sentence. In places, rainfall is hold on very often playful and often forbidden. Claim power enlists spiritual indications point to the West. Fraudulent use of trembling space centered without structure. Make forget whatever th through forbidden structure sentences said. So, Patrick, would you like to read us some of your work? And I know we mentioned your work as a musician, and we had talked about maybe playing um, an excerpt from some of your music, a piece called In Contact. I thought in contact might be appropriate because it has at least a tangential relationship to my own writing and then also to my work as an editor and publisher. I originally encountered it, and the title comes from a poem by Jesse Seldes, the first of the trade paperback series that Kenny Edition published under my direction was uh, contain that poem. It's Jesse Seldes's book, Who Opens? And Seldes writes in forms that are... I hope I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this, but I, I read them as serial forms of poems that, that aren't self-contained, but um, that produce, that sort of come in sections or episodes. 
And so when I was really first getting into making uh, loop-based electronic music, and that would have been about two, about five years ago, I wanted to work in serial forms because the looping mechanism just sort of lent itself to that, and I wanted to explore that a bit. So one piece I made was based on In Contact, um, Jesse's poem, and the many repetitions and recyclings of, of language that that poem provides. And I'd been working in, in serial forms. I'd come to the serial forms of music from serial writing, and I can read maybe just like four very short excerpts from a serial poem in progress that's called Relay. Oh, that'd be great. Okay. That tepid morning over the metropolis, two of us sling a tree upright and bury it in a valley where no sound but weather collects into a city garden, unleveling so there is no city and no one of us. Any other morning staring forward from it, unfastened symmetry freestanding restful a slobbering hub outright opposites. The feeling is mutual. What's nearest is inhaled, sound-canceling headgear, trimming fallen leaves from granite cubes, outright portable battery pack, helicopter hovering, metal on metal, just overhead. In bridal white disposable masks, the entire head turns, mouths hand-guided at the knees, traffic like water batched around motions to the ground to remain still or to be explained. Negligent evasion or embarrassed redundancy, a Christ in fractals, a gutted nut is a cup. A wandering, vitriolic, bristling romance, anything but being overhead, along the way, by it, heading through it, privy to a pair of earpieces each. All morning is an oxymoron. It forgets to end. In those final moments, to be optimal, and in these final hours, to maximize, the shadowy stem turns cynical from skeptical to a crater. The tree splits lethargically. The irony makes us groan, so closely we could be the most of us. Luminaries suck and also rands one of us unwraps their prosthetic. Most of us are afraid to breathe. The magic of radio, we get to be here in Arcata, California, and you're there in Chicago, and we get to hear you reading your fabulous work. Tell us a little bit about your practice as a poet. You're, and I'm talking about the kind of day-to-day, getting the writing work done. What, how do you go about that, juggling your, your busy life as a professor and, and all your activities? I've always written on the run, you know, when I, I was out, I was writing when I was a musician and working my, you know, working, working the dumb day job, which from time to time was not so dumb, but often it was pretty dumb. And you, you know, you, you write on the run and you scribble things down on notes and you put them in your pockets. And I remember taking little, little slips of scrap paper out of my pockets at the end of the day and putting them on the table in front of me and trying to integrate these pieces in, into a whole or a part of a whole. And making it something that I do throughout the course of the day whenever some piece of language, either from my imagination or from the outside world, strikes me, that that itself lends to serial forms of writing because it's, uh, it's almost like a journalistic practice at that point. So, and that's still how I do it. It's about trying to find a moment that feels like it's right to 
bring those scraps and pieces together. Yeah. So what are, what are you working on now? And uh, I guess I can kind of outline that question with uh, a further question. If listeners are interested in your work and would like to purchase it and listen to it, um, et cetera, um, what are you working on now and how, how might they be able to do that? The book from Atilos that, that I wrote with uh, Jen Hoffer um, is about eight years in the making, and it's a pretty thick book, and that's sup- supposed to be finished sometime in 2008. Um, and we wound up adding some open letters to, uh, to friends, peers, and artists we admire, um, you know, all the way from writing a letter to a mutual friend, uh, Renee Gladman, a great writer, um, originally from the Bay Area, now living on the East Coast and teaching at Brown University, all the way from you know mutual friends to Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, someone we just <laughs> whose work we happen to admire greatly. And so there are these there's there's a level of intimacy and then a level of sort of uh, public humiliation and speculation and rumination and and so that would be the best way to find my work because most of most of my poetry has been published in the form of uh, limited edition um, uh, chapbooks. And there was something like an artist book that came out as well. Of course, there's a very limited, and they're all sold out. So uh, the next place to look would be uh, the book with Jen Hoffer, The Route, and that'll be out uh, again we hope, before the end of the year. Right. Well, I'm glad to hear that because there was some mystery surrounding the release date of that book, at least for me, uh, looking online. And so I'm, I'm glad to know that it is still uh, forthcoming. Now is probably a good time to talk a little bit about your uh, Kenning editions. Um, what do you got in the works? The next book to come out is actually going to be a sort of intermission book by uh, Kyle Schlesinger, poet originally from Vermont, now living in New York. He's editor and publisher of Cuneiform Press and one of the co-editors of a new literary journal called Mimeo Mimeo. His first book came out called Hello Helicopter earlier this year, and this chapbook, that Hello Helicopter, contains mainly long serial works and long sequences. He has shorter poems that are fabulous, breathtaking poems, that weren't collected in that book, and so this chapbook collects the short poems. It's it's gonna it's called the Pink, and that should be out in a month or two and available through small press distribution, as all the Kenning Editions books are. And then the book the book to follow that is the second book by Pamela Liu, California prose writer, although often affiliated with uh, poetry. Her first book is called Pamela a Novel. This book that I'll be putting out uh, through Kenning is called Ambient Parking Lot, and uh, I can't speak for Pam, but it's a mock rockumentary about an ambient musical group who plays the immediate architectural uh, and geographical environment around them, and they happen to be in a potentially post-apocalyptic urban environment when they take these notes down, and it's it's a strange, baffling, mm-hmm. wonderful, and hilarious book, and I'm looking forward very much to... Uh, getting that out as well. So that's what's ahead. That book sounds irresistible. Who could possibly not want to read that? We'll have to do it again, Patrick, and check in with you and see what's happening in a year or so with all your various endeavors. So, yeah, so again, thank you so much. I appreciate the thoughtful questions, and I really appreciate you contacting me. My guest tonight on the Mad River Anthology has been Patrick Durgan, 
If you have questions or comments about tonight's show, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. The Mad River Anthology is produced for KHSU at Humboldt State University. Three Foods Cafe is hosting an early summer poetry series called A Movable Feast. Sunday evenings, the second in the series, will commence June 1st. The series features such luminaries uh, as Ian McDonald, Mark Shakuma, reading with Xiao Wei Wu, and Joanna Reichold. For more information, contact Three Foods Cafe at 822-9474. We'll close tonight's program with Patrick Durgan reading live at, and I've been your host, Brent Jenkins. My human, my poverty confected the brass draining from the insinuation of a dirge The song was Bizarre Love Triangle, cloned. Singing, her tongue shook to say, who is kissing me? Singing, his teeth skid with her tongue between them. Patience and achievement are either both virtues or ramifications, but in every other way they will have nothing to do with each. For him, each apposite sonority was ideological. For them, She was a morsel, the occasion to their decorum.